Well, before we open God's Word this morning, I do want to share a few more things. Uh, I'm excited to share that we have a group of almost 30 church members who will be making their way to Israel this Saturday. Can, can we hear it for those who are going? Yes. I look out there, I see many of you who will be part of that team. Nearly 30 of our church members will journey to Israel from October 7 to the 18th. And uh, I'm excited for what they're going to experience. And I hope to see many of us in the future also join them. Pastor Mark and Susan Hopper will be leading this wonderful team of 20-some-odd people, nearly 30 people going to Israel. So those who are going safe travels have an amazing time. Uh, there and experience God in a special way. Well, Yin mentioned and also Eddie mentioned that our family recently returned from two weeks in Europe. And I want to take a moment to say that uh, our trip did not go exactly according to our plan. But do you know what? God's plans are always perfect. They are always perfect. And we are so thankful that uh, we were able to travel back together as a family of four. And I can share more details with you uh, personally if you want to come up and ask afterward. But uh, we cannot thank you enough, church family, for your prayers covering our entire family, especially our daughter, uh, over the last few weeks. And uh, we're glad that uh, we're part of a church who cares so much, and we're thankful that we are back all together. And uh, I want to take a moment to to thank our staff and our leaders and our volunteers. While we were there in Europe, busy taking care of things for our family, what gave me great peace of mind was knowing that our church was in such great hands here uh, over those two weeks. And to our staff, um, thank you for your faithful stewardship. Every one of our staff members really um, stepped up and did an amazing job. I do want to just single out a handful of people. Eddie, thank you so much for faithfully leading our worship services the last two Sundays. Can we thank God for Eddie? And I thank God for our youth pastor, Kevin Ahn, and our junior high director, Tim Callahan. I had an opportunity to watch the past two Sunday services and wow, uh, they did such an amazing job. Yes, they did. I was personally touched by both of their messages, and I learned so much, and I, I was just so thankful. And as I was watching the services, watching their messages, I was thinking, boy, I got to be out of town more often so that they can preach more often. Uh, and so I thank God uh, for our entire staff and elders and uh, volunteers. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, the title of this morning's message is The Majesty of Adonai. The Majesty of Adonai. And we're going to be in Psalm 8, verse 1. I'll read that psalm for you in just a minute. The Majesty of Adonai. But before we open up to that passage, I have a question for you. Who here remembers the British television series, Downton Abbey? Anybody here? Okay, some of you do, okay? All right, so many of you, you can actually stream it now if you want to. But Downton Abbey was a very popular 
British television series that ran for six seasons from 2010 to 2016. When, when it ended, there, there were sequels, there was a film made about it, and whether you watched it or not, okay, people all across the world were, were glued to their set every week watching this series. And I admit, we watched it, and at the end of every episode, we couldn't wait till the next week because back then, you couldn't just binge watch it. You had to wait a whole week before the next episode would air. Now, this series was set in the fictional country estate of Downton Abbey back in the early 1900s. And it depicted the lives of this aristocratic family called the Crawley family, along with their domestic servants. And when you watch the show, you begin to realize the disparity between the two classes. So really, in a sense, this show was about two different classes, the haves versus the have-nots. Those who lived upstairs in the grand rooms, and then those who were down below, spending their days ironing clothes, shining shoes, preparing meals for all those who lived upstairs. And those who were downstairs, they would refer to those upstairs by titles. And one of those titles is a title that you and I are very familiar with here in the church, and that's the title Lord. And so certain people were addressed as Lord. And Lord is the title that we're going to focus our attention on this morning as we continue in this series. And it's important to know today that throughout this series, we've been touching upon different names of God, but also different titles. And today is a title of God, not necessarily a name, but a title given to him. So I invite you to turn to Psalm 8. And I'll read to you verse 1. And this will be our launching pad, our jumping off point for this message. Psalm 8, verse 1. The psalmist writes, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. So, in the opening line of this psalm, the word Lord appears how many times? Twice. Now, the first instance, Lord, is capitalized. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But in your Bibles, you'll notice the second Lord is not capitalized. It's capital L, but lowercase o-r-d. Now, in English, we have the same word, Lord, and Lord. Lord, our Lord. But in Hebrew, these are two very different words. And now this will be a good time for us to do a very brief review of our first message in this series, because it's been a number of weeks. And by the way, before I give you a brief review, for those of you who liked the subject of grammar in school, you'll love this. I loved grammar. I loved grammar in school, so I love conversations like this. For those of you who slept through your grammar class in school, I'll know who you are as I look out there. But seriously, this is important. In message number one, 
we introduced you to a word. The word was tetragrammaton. And you see that word up here. Tetragrammaton simply means four letters. Tetra means four. In college, I loved playing Tetris. I couldn't get enough of Tetris. Tetris, if you really study the pieces, even though they are different shapes, they all contain four squares. So tetra, meaning four, and grammaton, meaning letters. Tetragrammaton refers specifically to four Hebrew consonants. And you see these consonants up here. In Hebrew, you always read from right to left. And so the four consonants are Y, H, W, H. Y is the Hebrew letter Yod. H, the Hebrew letter He. And then W is the Hebrew letter Wa. And then He again. Y, H, W, H. In Psalm 8, verse 1, when we read LORD in all capitals, the Hebrew word is the Y-H-W-H, those four consonants. And most likely, the pronunciation is Yahweh. This was God's special covenant name. Yahweh was so holy that Jews feared even to say it. So even today, when Jews are reading from the Hebrew text, they will not pronounce Y-H-W-H. Instead, they will say Adonai, even though that's a different word. Now, let's talk a little about Adonai. Adonai, when it refers to God, means supreme ruler. So in Psalm 8, verse 1, again, in the English language, it says, it says Lord, our Lord. The only way we can distinguish between the two is by capitals or lowercase. But in Hebrew, the first instance, Lord, is Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Lord, his name, our Lord. The second Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. That's the title, supreme ruler. So when you read Psalm 8-1, literally you read it this way. Yahweh, our supreme ruler. How majestic is your name. As Christians, we often hear the phrase, all glory to God. God, you are so majestic. When we see athletes score a touchdown or hit a home run, they'll point to the sky, all glory to God. But what do we mean when we say all glory to God? When we think of something that's glorious or majestic, certain words come to mind. Awe-inspiring, awesome, grand, spectacular, and those are all true. But when we talk about the majesty of God, as we're going to do throughout today's message, I want us to understand this, that we cannot fully fathom what it means that God is majestic. We're only getting a glimpse. But for our purposes, I want to try my best to define the majesty of God, okay? So even though I cannot fully define God's majesty, for our purposes, here is our working definition. God's majesty is the sum total of his splendor and its effect 
on humanity. That's important for us to know. It's the sum total of his splendor and also its effect on humanity. There's a passage in the book of Exodus where Moses is having a dialogue with God. Moses wants assurance from God. Moses wants to know that God's going to be with him as he leads God's people. And so Moses says to God, show me your glory. And what I want to do now is I want to see God's response to Moses. When Moses says, God, show me your glory. Turn to Exodus chapter 33. And I'll read to you verses 19 to 23. Exodus 33. Starting in verse 19, we'll see God's response. And the Lord said, is the Lord capitalized there? Yes. So who are we talking about? Yahweh. The Y-H-W-H. The name of God. His covenant name. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So when Moses says to God, show me your glory, God says, okay, I'm going to show you my glory, but if I show you my full glory, you know what would happen? You know what would, ha what would have happened if Moses saw God's full glory? What would have happened? He would have died. Moses would have been struck dead. So God spared him. So he said, Moses, there's a rock. On Mount Sinai, there's a rock. So he stood Moses there on the rock, but in the rock there was a little split, a cleft. And so he had Moses stand in that cleft. And then as God's glory passed by, God put his hand in front of Moses to kind of shield him like a welder's helmet shields him from the blinding torch. And just as God's presence passed by, Moses saw his back. Now, of course, God doesn't have a back. God doesn't have a face. He doesn't have a hand. He is spirit. And no matter how many times artists try to picture God as this old man with flowy white hair and a beard, we can never fathom God's glory because he is too majestic. He is spirit. But we're using human traits, anthropomorphisms, to describe God. And so God spared Moses. Had God given Moses his full glory again, Moses would have been struck dead. One author says this, to see a little of the infinite God is to see much more than the mind can fathom. I'll say that again. To see a little of the infinite God is to see much more than the mind can fathom. You and I could not handle all of God's splendor. It's just too overwhelming. We just get glimpses of his glory from time to time, and that's enough. That enough is awe-inspiring. It'd be too overwhelming, like all the stars 
in the sky. Try this next time you're in the mountains or in the desert, away from all the city pollution. The next time you're in the mountains or in the desert, at nighttime, step out, stare into the sky, and do you know what will happen when you see all the stars? Something fascinating happens. When you stare into the night sky in the desert or the mountains, more stars appear the longer you look at the sky. The prophet Isaiah, he proclaimed in Isaiah 40, verse 26, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And just imagine if Isaiah had a telescope. But even with a telescope, you can barely scratch the surface of all the stars in the sky. I know that experts try to estimate the number of stars in the sky. Even still, it's just a broad estimation. Scientists estimate that there are anywhere from 2 trillion to 10 trillion galaxies. Not stars, galaxies in the universe. In our, in our universe, the, I'm sorry, in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, it's estimated that we have anywhere from 100 to 400 billion stars alone in our galaxy. Now let's put this into perspective. Have you ever noticed when you come back from the beach and you try to vacuum out all the sand from your car's floor mat? It's impossible. You see, because the more I vacuum, the more sand appears. It's like magic. I vacuum and more sand comes up. It's a never-ending task. Scientists have actually tried to estimate the number of sand grains on Earth. So they've, they've measured a grain of sand, and they've filled a gallon jar with sand, and then they estimate how many jars of sand there are on Earth. Here's what they've estimated. And I'll compare it by talking about stars. Scientists say, now picture all the deserts, all the beaches, Picture your child's sandbox right now. And scientists estimate that for every one grain of sand on Earth, there are 10,000 stars in the sky. Again, Isaiah proclaimed, who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. How many times have you met somebody and not five minutes later you've forgotten that person's name? We've all been there. <laughs> Parents have a hard enough time keeping track of all their kids' names, right? And yet, our Heavenly Father knows us by name. He knows every star by name. And he never gets a name wrong. That's because he cares for us as if our care was the only one in the entire world.
When you were sick, when you were ill, when you were anxious, when you were afraid, and we've all been there, doesn't it feel like the world revolves around you? And actually, in many ways, that's not inaccurate when we think about the fact that God cares for that care as if it was the only care that he had to concern himself with. It's just mind-boggling to know that God cares for every single one of us here in the most special way. And I don't know what your care is right now, but I know each of us has a care. And I hope you are comforted by the fact that God cares for that one need as if it was the only one he had on his plate that day. One of the benefits of traveling and exploring other parts of the world is to be able to see how big our world is and to see God's handiwork in many different ways, many different places. On our trip to Europe, we spent most of our time in Italy, about a week and a half in Italy. And while our itinerary was not exactly how we had initially planned it to be, again, God's plans are perfect. And we got glimpses of some amazing cities. And I will tell you, tell you yes, the pasta is that good. <laughs> and the pizza is that good. And, uh, but beyond that, we got to see God in creation. We got to see God in the arts. We got to see God in the people. We spent a handful of days in the city of Berlin, in Germany. Again, we got to see God's beauty. Germany was very different than Italy. And those are two very different places than Southern California. And so traveling gives us the opportunity to see God's beauty in many different places and in different ways. And what I what discovered over the last two weeks is this that exploring other places that might not be familiar to us, what it does is this. It helps us to get to know ourselves better. It helps us to get to know other people better. And certainly it helps us to get to know God better. And, and two things happened. I think exploring unknown places, it expands our perspective on life. And even more importantly, it expands our empathy. Exploring other places that are different than ours, it helps us to expand our empathy and see how big God's creation is. We are moved by the beauty of creation. Eddie mentioned that earlier on before we sang the song when he said that we are amazed by creation, but we worship the creator. You see, what happened was somewhere along the line, humanity took God's glory for ourselves. That happened when sin entered the picture. So whenever we talk about God's glory, 
Whenever we talk about God's majesty, we cannot separate that discussion from the discussion of sin. That's the reality. When humanity decided to take God's glory for ourselves, we became separated from God. And that's what took place in the garden, and that's what's been taking place ever since. And although creation reveals the glory and the majesty of God, many have rejected this knowledge, choosing instead to exchange God's glory for a false glory. Now, how does humanity rob God of his glory? Think about that question. How does humanity rob God of his glory and majesty? Well, it might not be as blatant as you think it might be, like just simply bowing down to an object. Here are some examples of how we rob God of his glory. When we view a sunset or a sunrise, and we marvel at the beauty of the sun without thinking about the one who created the sun. When we do that, we rob God of his glory. When we listen to a song and we idolize the singer or the musician, wow, such talent, without thinking about the one who gave that artist that gift. Or let's bring it closer to home. When we exercise our own talents, for our own selfish gain, or pats on the back, or likes, or followers, without acknowledging that it was God who gave us those talents all along. Church, let's not exchange God's glory for something less. Thankfully, God is a gracious God, and he has provided a way for those who have been separated from him to come back into fellowship with him. That's why in John chapter 1, verse 14, it tells us this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. In Jesus Christ, we have seen God's glory and his majesty. Now, at this point in the message, I want to introduce you to the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Adonai. And I'm, I'm glad that you're staying with me because this is an important progression. In Psalm 8.1, there were two instances of the word Lord, right? Psalm 8.1, it said, Lord, all capitals. That was referring to God's covenant name, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. The second instance was our Lord, lowercase O-R-D. And that was the word Adonai, the supreme ruler, right? You're with me, right? So Yahweh, our supreme ruler. Now, I want to introduce you to the Greek equivalent of the word Adonai. In the New Testament, the Hebrew Adonai becomes the Greek Kyrios, K-Y. R-I-O-S. But the meaning, Lord, supreme ruler, is the same. This is important. In the New Testament, Jesus is called Savior some 20 times. That seems like a lot, 20 times. Jesus is called Savior 20 times, but check this out. 
He is called Kyrios, Lord, some 700 times. 700 times Jesus is called Lord, Kyrios, the Hebrew Adonai, supreme ruler. Let's go back to Downton Abbey for just a minute. Lord Grantham was the head of the Crawley family. He was the head of Downton Abbey. All the servants waited on him, hand and foot. In fact, Lord Grantham had his own personal butler. His name was Mr. Carson. Lord Grantham did nothing for himself. He did no heavy lifting. He didn't even button his own shirt. His butler buttoned his shirt for him every morning. But you see, throughout history, that's what happens. Those in high places, they don't do any work. They sit back and they allow others to serve them hand and foot. Which makes it so remarkable when we think about the fact that the creator of the universe didn't wait for us to go to him. He came to us and he waited on us hand and foot. And when Jesus was born, he didn't come in a stretched limo with a police escort as if to say, hey, look at me. I'm royalty. Where's my red carpet? No, he appeared in a place where animals were fed. Do you know what accompanies farm animals? Two things, and I know this firsthand, okay? Do you know what accompanies farm animals? Odor and flies. Wherever you have farm animals, you have odor and then you have flies. I know that because when we moved into our house, in the land of dairies, we had odor and we had flies. When Jesus came to earth, he was born in a place that smelled and attracted flies. He should have been born in first-class accommodations. But you know that Jesus never played the God card? You know what I mean by the God card? He never said, do you know who I am? He never said, uh, do you know who my father is? Don't I deserve the best room in the inn? Instead, Kyrios, the Lord, the supreme ruler, he emptied himself and he took the form of a bond servant and he went to the cross to die for us. What kind of king does that? What kind of king does that? What kind of king gives up his comforts, let alone his rights? And that's exactly what Jesus did. What kind of king is more concerned about the welfare of others than his own personal comforts? Church, I know this is a long, drawn-out message to get to this point. 
But I, I hope you understand. We had to build our way up to this point to come to this moment right now. Our aim in life is to look like Jesus. It's to be like Jesus, right? That is our aim in life. To be like Jesus. To look like him, to talk like him, to live like him. That's our chief end in life. To, to be like Jesus. And to be conformed to his likeness. If that's our goal, then we must have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. And Paul reminds us in Philippians 2 that we are to do nothing from selfish ambition. Rather, in all humility, value others above yourselves. That means spouse. We are to value our spouse above ourselves. Parent, value your children above yourself. Children, value your parents above yourself. And church member, value the person sitting in front of you and behind you above yourselves. Jesus was born to become a servant, to take our place on the cross. He died a volunteer. He didn't have to die, and he could have died a valiant death on the battlefield, but he died a criminal's death, the most humiliating, shameful death. But in the end, here's, here's the good news. In the end, God, Yahweh, Adonai, the supreme ruler, would have the final word and place his son, Kyrios, next to him on the throne. I want you to read verses 9 through 11 in Philippians 2. And maybe you're familiar with this passage, but I hope it will come to life in a new way. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, in light of all that we've set up until this point, I want you to focus on these three verses, and especially as we get to verse 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Kyrios, the supreme ruler, to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus died and rose and he ascended into heaven, here's what happened. God seated him in the place of honor, and one day in the future, guess what? Every tongue will confess. And every knee will bow. Now, what this does not mean is this. It does not mean that everyone's going to become a believer. That's not what this passage means. It means this. No matter where our eternal destiny is, whether in heaven with him or apart from him, no matter our eternal destiny, destiny every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is curious. And every knee will bow. God has the final word. 
the sovereign Lord of the universe. When I was a college student at UCLA many years ago, on occasion I visited a church in the San Fernando Valley. The church was pastored by the late Dr. Jack Hayford. Dr. Jack Hayford went to be with the Lord in January of this year, just shy of his 89th birthday. As a student there at UCLA, I'd go and visit various churches, and I visited his church a handful of times. Dr. Hayford, in addition to being a pastor, he was a prolific author and songwriter. In fact, he wrote over 600 songs and hymns in his lifetime. Many years ago, in 1977, again, that's many years ago, Dr. Hayford and his wife visited England during the Silver Jubilee. The Silver Jubilee at that time was the 25th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth's rise to the throne. And when they visited England, Dr. Hayford and his wife were awestruck by the grandeur of the celebration. And while they were in England, they visited Blenheim Palace. Here's a photo of this magnificent palace. This is Blenheim Palace, birthplace of Winston Churchill. As they drove away from this palace, the one word that just kept coming back to Dr. Hayford's mind was majesty. 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 And as he drove away, he asked his wife to take out a notebook and a pen to write down some thoughts that came to his mind. And then he began to dictate to his wife the lyrics and melody of a song that would go on to be one of the most well-known songs of the 1980s. And we all know that the 80s produced the best music in the entire history of the world, right? I'm not biased. That's a fact. Even your kids, they sing 80s songs. And it was true also for Christian music in the 80s. And this one song went on to be considered one of the top Christian songs of all time, simply titled Majesty. And he penned these words as he was driving away from Blenheim Palace. And the opening lines of the song simply titled Majesty went like this. Majesty. Worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise. Majesty, kingdom authority. Flow from his throne unto his own, his anthem raise. What a fitting song. Written after Psalm 8, verse 1. This week, church, when we wake up 
each morning and we pause at the side of our bed, my encouragement is this, that we take a moment and picture Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God and we say to him, Jesus, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then as we get out of our bed, we remind ourselves to have the mindset of Christ that day by valuing others above ourselves. That is my encouragement to you, church.